So let's start right now. And thank you very much, uh, first of all, for, for, for joining you first to our, to our panelists. And I'll go more in details on this, but also to the, uh, to the attendants. I, I know people are, are trickling, uh, trickling down in, a, in the next few minutes and, and entering this <clears throat> Uh, we're in August, so we're all to so, some extent coming back, or for some that are very lucky, I know one of the panelists especially is leaving on vacation tomorrow. So that's a moment that I know that a lot of people uh, will be on vacation and might actually watch also the, the recorded version of this webinar. So, uh, I mean, we will be able to, to, to share it afterwards. But I wanted to, to thank you, therefore, to uh, join by our series of, of webinar on ESG best practices in extractive and energy sector. Uh, we did cover, uh, as you have, some of you know, a series of elements on, on community consent, on industry community communities, on local content, on social performance. And this is a little bit more the second panel that we wouldn't want to develop on local content following the one with uh, uh, with the IFC Total Energies uh, was there, uh, Sheila Kama, others were building on, on issues of best practice in local content. And we wanted to address here the specific case of you know Mozambique, uh, Uganda, uh, and Tanzania, uh, a very interesting region. Uh, and I know Yannick was here, will actually expand on, on this uh, as, as, as a first speaker. But first, I wanted maybe to, uh, to introduce our, our different panelists. I mentioned, uh, you know, first uh, we, we joined by, by Patricia Graham. So uh, Patricia is uh, uh, unfortunately very early retired because you should have been staying in you know, much longer. And it's good that you're actually uh, joining us right now uh, on this uh, on this webinar. Patricia is a, is a lawyer by background. She obviously worked, you know, 30 years in a in a large oil and gas industry. But what's interesting with Patricia is the background. So I'm, I'm kind of adding some personal stuff because we've been talking a lot. The background of both governmental affairs, but also understanding of sustainability. And I know that you've been spending the last few months specifically on the series of training on sustainability on human rights with the UN system and, and others so there's a very interesting view on, on, on seeing how you know the SDGs and, and transition in the energy world can, can can be seen through the oil and gas uh, uh, company uh, uh, vision we also have to continue on on, on, uh, on our lovely guest uh, Tatiana we have uh, Tatiana is, is also someone that has this joint expertise from lawyer background with TPLA but also you actually created your president of you know Mozambique women of energy so this understanding of, of seeing also social performance and, and gender issues that can be benefiting from the trickling down in investment, both in oil and gas, but also in renewable and mining. So um, we maybe might be able to bridge into this in, in terms of, of some of the mining folks that are joining us in this webinar. And then for the, the, the gentleman side, we also have uh, both Thomas and, and, and Yannick. So Yannick, uh, I've known Yannick for quite some time. Yannick is actually uh, in Maputo uh, and, and, and so one of the person that I listen very often when I try to get a better sense of current news in, in Maputo is a uh, graduate in business management from the US and, and actually uh, works uh, as managing director of Innovador for the last seven years, working especially in the mining and the energy sector, looking at juridic aspects, but also the political approach, the aspects of, of potential economic development. And, and we've been discussing for quite some time with, with Yannick, not always with a suit and, and very, uh, very formally in, in a webinar, but much more in, in lovely restaurants in Maputo and different places of Mozambique. So I'm very happy that you, you, you're with us, Yannick. And finally, Thomas, so we have the, the two French guys, Thomas and, and myself, obviously hopefully uh, the least arrogant of, of our kind, or at least you know not having the cliche, we actually good guys, if you actually uh, dig a little deeper. Uh, but the, the idea here of trying to get also the perspective from, from Total, a good friend of mine, and especially a very strong expert. Uh, from, sorry, it's not from, from, from different projects in, in, in Mozambique. I was just mentioning your experience in, in the oil gas uh, sector. And, and now also, obviously, uh, looking at uh, the, the vision of developing local content 
uh, strategies and policies uh, in, uh, in, the, uh, in Mozambique, but also in other countries. And that's why I was also very interested to have you from your perspective from Uganda and Congo, if I remember well, you had conversation of, of, of you know, time that you spent in Congo before and continue having this regional you know, expertise on the, uh, on, on the topic at hand. Just wanted to mention a few uh, small details. This is a Chatham House uh, webinar. So we actually have officially um, you know, a discussion through INGO with Chatham House. You have this you know, validated as Chatham House webinars. So please don't you know, share this. I know there's a two, one or two uh, journalists that actually signed it. So I want to be very clear. These are cons uh, content that shouldn't be applied to specific people. And we don't talk on behalf of our you know, organizations, uh, definitely not our former organization, but we actually want to be able to share best practices and discussing you know, the way that this could be actually uh, trickling down in terms of development. I've been very, very long in terms of this introduction. Uh, I, I, I first, if that's okay with you, to turn probably to, to Yannick uh, to help me set the stage here in terms of uh, you know the, the recent developments in the field of energy but also you know mining if you want to brush upon them in Mozambique which is definitely a, a country that, that you know very well but a little bit also in Uganda and Tanzania if you can I can actually develop on this Yannick can you maybe help me set the stage here for some of our folks that are maybe not that familiar with the, the, the region the developments we also have very strong experts on the field but you will help me do some introductory remarks thank you very much Yannick. Uh, thank you Remy uh, but just before just in case I missed did we introduce Tasiana? Yes, I did introduce Tatiana very, very, quite briefly, but I'll give some more words. Yes, absolutely. Yes, I did. Okay, I guess I, I was the one that missed it. Uh, so thank you. And uh, thank you for being here with all these panelists to talk about such an important issue and very relevant to me as a Mozambican and to this region of Southern Africa. Uh, when we look at the landscape in Uganda, Mozambique, and Tanzania, we see that the potential has always been there for energy development. Uh, in terms of mining, it's historic about the resources that have been uh, supporting each economy. It's known that Tanzania is very much uh, heavily exporting gold. Uh, Mozambique recently, uh, in, in the turn of the decade, was one of the largest ruby deposits discovered. Uh, and in terms of energy, we also see that the projects that we speak about today, Tanzania and Mozambique, in terms of gas are recent, but in terms of other potential developments, there have been other attempts in hydro, uh, in, in other sectors to try to develop the region, but it's still been very, very, under, underdeveloped. Mozambique's installed capacity is about 3,000 megawatts. When you look at Uganda, I believe it's about 500 and Tanzania 1,500, which is a far cry from the regional potential that you see, including Mozambique say, stated as uh, the largest Southern African potential of about 106, uh, 187 gigawatts uh, from hydro, from gas, from coal and the like. Uh, today, the most relevant projects we speak here in Mozambique are two sectors, the hydrosphere and as well as LNG. LNG, it's something that since a few years ago, 2015, we had projected that by today we would be exploring and it's similar in Tanzania where it was about the same time where the craze and the hype of the discoveries being almost a joint basin. And as well as for Uganda, it's oil production. It was already commercial, declared commercial by 2006, but only recently is it really taking the development uh, 
is it going into a development stage? So important to note, Tanzania, Mozambique share a border and do, so do Uganda and Tanzania. So the collaboration for the region is very important when it comes to developing energy, especially when it comes to export solutions for Ugandans oil through the Tanzanian ports. And as well as Mozambique has been a regional supplier of energy and pressed to become more so, but because there's a lacking infrastructure internally, it's not able to both meet the demands of its neighbors and the demands within Mozambique. Going specifically to Mozambique, uh, one, uh, one, three projects that I would like to discuss that also give us a look as to what is the ultimate goal of the development and it trickles down to impacting positively the country in terms of development and the communities. And this goes uh, to the responsibility of not just the multinationals that come in, but to government when it comes to local content. Uh, if we look at the Kaurabasa Dam, which is Mozambique's primary source of energy, it's been very poor in developing industries internally because it cannot even connect the grid from north-south. And today, to address that need, the government is moving forward with the support of the World Bank in updating the grid to connect that to, to the southern region where there's more industrial demand and as well ex expanding the Corabasa dam potential downstream with the project Anankua that would almost double its capacity to also service the region. These are projects that have been in talk with South Africa, Zimbabwe and the like. Um, and going into gas, uh, the LNG, which is mostly focused on far away markets to make feasible, has also been stated as a benefit to the country due to the windfall from the tax revenue and the potential to increase Mozambican growth that would impact ultimately each community. Cabo Delgado is the region that we are focusing when we talk about development, but Cabo Delgado is also the poorest, one of the poorest provinces in the country. And when you look at the resource, resource wealth, it's a disparity between when resources were started to be explored and what kind of development has occurred in that region. So this touches on the concern of local content of do these projects with the potential they hold actually develop the communities? Yes. And when not properly, sorry? No, no maybe to build on this, and that's, that's uh, very interesting too. You actually mentioned the, the developments, but also now looking at maybe socioeconomic issues and, and, and level of, of developments and the gaps, because we even try to look at bridging the gaps. I very much appreciate you touching upon this. I just wanted also to mention that I see there was some raised hands from the attendants. Please feel free to ask questions in the, uh, in the chat, but indeed that's very interesting to, to brush upon, and if you could actually uh, uh, comment on this, on these potentially gaps that could be, you know, bridged by a series of local content policies that would help me transition then afterwards to, to Patty. Thank you. Thank you, Yannick. Okay. Uh, so the bridge has always been a government solution. Government has to help the, uh, the companies that wish to invest know how they can best serve each community. Uh, the discussions of local content go mostly towards a discussion of shareholding. And there are three pillars usually when we talk about local content that we fo uh, focus on. There's your shareholding, there's your management control, and there's your skills transfer. For the level of capacity that we have installed, we are very 
unable to participate in mega projects in terms of shareholding and equal capital and raising about 51% of the equity. And in terms of management as well, when you consider the expertise of these companies that come from abroad and the kind of credentials that you need to lead such projects, we're also, we're building capacity, but not quite. The easiest has been to try to capacitate the local workers and this has also been the easiest way to build a relationship with communities that see a project uh, encroaching onto their lands and not feel left out or kicked out of any potential growth is to capacitate the communities to participate. And because there always needs to be a long-term solution for these communities, not just come in, build a pipeline, let's say, and then leave and the communities do not, no longer have any participation on that. There has to be that look because the outcome, which is what I was trying to um, hint at when we see that there's mega projects and there's a region that has not developed and there's sorts of resentment from the local population is the investment risk when it comes to conflict zones, which is what's occurring in Cabo and when you're looking at you know building capacity on one on one level, but also socioeconomic risk that impact the, the capacity for in, for investors or interest for investors and, and the role of, of oil and gas companies, maybe just you know turning to to, to Patricia, uh, when we discuss you know from the perspective of oil and gas projects on all those 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 uh, important elements that have to be included in terms of the decision to engage into an investment to to develop a project, you know you've been looking at this you know specifically at how to value this or specifically at how the importance that it is and the responsibility potentially of, of, of companies to engage into this. Can you maybe share some thoughts on this? I think one of the principal things that we have to look at is what kind of responsibilities will the company have and what kind of interest do they have in, in tackling some of the issues that come in. And, and really, you know, you have to separate between what are government responsibilities, for example, and, and you know, security and, and protection of human rights comes to mind. But also you have to balance out what is in the best interest of the company to work to, to work and make sure that they can address. From a, from a government perspective also, um, particularly the, the countries that we're talking about, but many countries which are, you know, still have a large potential of resource development, you are looking at, at governments that are perhaps working with the UN or relying on World Bank funding and financing. And of course, that ties into you know, sustainable development goals and where governments are needing to report to continue to be able to obtain this kind of funding. Who do they need to turn to to get that kind of information? And I think that's one area where, uh, where corporations are going to start to see more of a demand and a need. From, um, from a responsibility standpoint as well, of course, you've got all the laws and regulations and the contracting agreements. And a lot of times those will set out some of the main responsibilities. And particularly here, I'm thinking, tying back into local content, but going through the community issues, you are talking about, for example, um, land usage, uh, resettlement, livelihood restoration. And when we think of local content, we do think of workforce development and supplier capacity development, but really, Long-term, you're talking about the communities because the actual activity of, of developing exploration is it takes a while. But once a project goes forward, the construction time is going to be very limited. It's going to be four or five years. And after that, any jobs that were created are gone. The longer term for the production phases, which go on for 20 years or, or more, uh, are, are going to be significantly reduced. So that leads you to the fact that 
the investment needs to be for longer term, it needs to be focused on the communities, it needs to be diversified, and all the training and skills development needs to be looked at not exclusively as part of oil and gas, but rather transferable. And, and I think that is, that is one of the key things. Um, you're probably not going to have time to train an engineer to work on that particular upstream area or on the you know, LNG project itself, but you need to be training these engineers where they can be working on longer term future projects so that they can get some experience. From, from a community standpoint, I think that um, it's, it's important to note that for, for decades, if not centuries, corporations have always been responsible to their investors. They have always had to respond to the investors in terms of how they're spending their money, how the money is being allocated, and that it's not being spent on anything other than what investors expected it to be spent on. What, what we're seeing now, um, you know, particularly just, just a few months ago, is that communities are raising their voices to discuss what their issues are. Where they're not seeing a response, they're turning to other audiences that they may have access to, and they are being encouraged to share their, their concerns. So we, we saw not too long ago uh, you know, an investor reaction to where you know, in, in, in just one week, you saw a reaction by courts in the Netherlands in terms of uh, communities and human rights and the need to reduce emissions. You saw um, board changes, he, he you saw quite, shareholder resolutions. Yes, it was quite a week in terms anyway, of news indeed, yes. It was, uh, you know, the, the big shakeup and that was, that was all, by the way, on May 26th. So I think that's a day that will be remembered, hopefully with a lot of uh, um, recognition of the need to address what these issues are. I, I think that, that really what's critical to this, the fact that this all came around full circle is that the communities themselves, and, and there are different communities, of course, you're talking about the local communities that have been living and working for generations on, on land that is now being designated as potential uh, future site developments, either to extract or to build the facilities to extract. And what happens to these communities when their entire history and future changes? And, uh, you know, you look at restitution, you look at, uh, sorry, at, at resettlement, so just moving the community, but of course you have, you have to think where are, you, where are they going to go and what are they going to do? And then you have to look at the livelihood restoration. And I think this is where we come back into the area of local content. Um, again, not just the workforce, but rather what can these communities do? And typically it's not necessarily oil and gas or extractives. Well, Some of it is and should be. Maybe maybe a follow-up question on this, and you actually raise very important issues in terms of, of thinking long-term and, and trying to see what's happening after the project. But even during the project, there's the construction phase, then the operation phase, there's very different workflows in terms of, of, of numbers of employees or types of contracts. So you made that very good point. I know Thomas is probably going to build on this, on the importance to have you know, economic diversification through you know, investment uh, uh, through the, the oil and gas sector. But I want to, to, to get also your perspective you know, from, you know, the kind of, of socializations of projects and the engagement with communities maybe early in the cycle and before just before this webinar we we're yeah. discussing about experience in Cabo Delgado experience on the ground you know when you look at the timeline of engagement with communities you know how, how do you see the best practices in how to re-engage sometimes after a crisis or to engage at the beginning of a, of a project 
I, I think one of the, um, the biggest criticisms I think of engagement from extractive communities, and I, I don't know if this applies to the mining world as well, but certainly for larger corporations, um, is that a lot of decisions are made before the companies actually start engaging with even with the government, much less with the local communities. And, and there, is, there is a need to a degree to have some, engage, some, some decision-making because you know, if you wanna go and, and tell communities what you're doing, you have to have an idea of what you want to do. But it really, the engagement with the community needs to be significantly earlier because at the point of exploration, you already have an idea of what you're probably going to develop. It's certainly not refined. You don't even know if you're gonna find the sufficient uh, amount of resource to develop. But that discussion needs to be had early on. And, and it's critical because, and, and how you have that discussion is critical because there may be a significant gap from the first time you come and talk to the community to when the exploration activities have been conducted and have been, uh, you know, and a, a decision is made to go forward. It's a significant amount of time. And, and quite frankly, I know that there, there is a concern on how to balance that because once a big company shows up, expectations multiply. You know, uh, the community expectations will always be going upward. And unfortunately, the thought process of how much is going to be invested, the trend in the past is being downward, absolutely downward. I will definitely that's come something back, that is changing. I will definitely come back to you in the second round of questions on, on, on issues of how to engage with communities and, and transparency of, of dialogues and, and others. Uh, I, I think we, we talked about, you know, the long-term perspective, the very short-term, you know, how to engage from, from the get-go. There's obviously the large part, which is, you know, doing a project and how to make sure that we can arrive to those long-term, you know, uh, perspective. And then the, the local business ecosystem is, is so, so important and trying to, you know, work together with the existing local business ecosystem or to help develop it. And maybe that that's, you know, could be a good transition for you, uh, uh, Thomas, of how to, you know, develop these, these business ecosystem capacities, maybe through large oil and gas projects towards, you know, those long-term uh, perspective. Can you maybe uh, provide some of your expertise and experience in this? Yeah, sure. I just want to provide a general feedback before getting into the topic. So when we talk about developing business ecosystem, local content, etc., there's often a lot of expectations coming from the concessionaires. And uh, often this expectation leads, leads to uh, a certain passivity speech. And what I'd like to emphasize uh, by uh, answering this question, just highlighting that this ecosystem is made of several stakeholders and they all have a different but key role into uh, optimizing the global local content performance of the project. So we talk about workforce, we talk about the competitive goods and services that require finance, we talk about capacity building uh, capabilities. Uh, so yes, so so this is just, just wanted to share the, this, uh, this feedback, but also would like a bit more into depth into the various profiles of stakeholders that we find into this ecosystem and how to best uh, provide a, yeah, a vision on how to best uh, involve them. So, of course, all these players around the market, they need to be provided with the minimum information. So, the first thing to do is to conduct an assessment what exists in the market, what are the gaps uh, when compared with the, the project needs, and these information need to be uh, efficiently shared with these stakeholders so they can respectively address the set of challenges uh, that is part of their core business. So let me just uh, state a few key stakeholders and I will also um, um, detail what could be the, what are their main, uh, what can be their main contributions. So of course, the first thing is the, the local authorities and public institutions. So they will set the regular, regulatory framework. They will also be 
quite, uh, have quite an importance to promote the use of local goods and services, but also provide incentive for foreign investment. It depends on their vision. Um, uh, but, uh, but it's important to provide incentive, especially when we want to generate a new in-country uh, offering. Um, there is also the public institution. So when we talk about immigration, custom is important that the authority also share, uh, acknowledge their responsibility and uh, accordingly set up the respective structure to meet the project needs. When we talk about mega projects, it's thousands of workforce coming out in a very short amount of time. It's hundreds of suppliers that are coming, same thing in a very short amount of time. So we need to be prepared and we need to be able to efficiently and quickly seize those opportunities. So there, there is uh, some responsibility from, from the local authority side. Then after, of course, we got the project and the concessionaire. So typically the project and concessionaire will abide by the regulatory framework. But as uh, Patricia mentioned, there's also quite some uh, responsibility uh, in regards to its shareholding and local content is taking a bigger part of it. So we mentioned uh, local communities, which are key and critical. There is also a whole set about how to operate effective transfer of technology from the oil and gas, uh, on say, main contractor expert to the local market. And so one of the role of the project, the concessionaire, will be to make sure that the whole supply chain is involved in this process and have the, the required processes so to operate this transfer of technology, but also make the most uh, use of the, the actual local capacity, either workforce-related or, uh, or uh, SMEs-related. And then we have the local companies and representatives. So I know we, we tend to, uh, to take them for account, but for me, it's quite important because often one of the main difficulties we have when we uh, do a mega project and want to enhance uh, the local capacity is actually to know who is on the market and who is potential to uh, comply with one of my needs. So if I mention this, it's because market visibility is very, very important to the whole supply chain. And if we want to make, uh, if any project want to, want to make the make most use of it, visible. So local uh, companies, there are business associations that are represented in country, and we can very well imagine that these uh, business associations get organized to provide sufficient information to the new market players. And here I'm particularly talking and aiming the international contractors. They come into the market, they don't know the country as much as these uh, local stakeholders, but they need to identify them. If they are not aware that this company or these services exist, they will not contact, it is normal. So there is some, um, uh, some responsibility here in regards to, to local companies, but I put business association could be another entity. Um, <clears throat> then I also want to mention that we have the financial institution and in this I will include the banks as well. Uh, so these are key to address access to finance topic. I think it's a subject we don't talk uh, of it enough, but it is really critical because it has um, access to finance actually impact on the commercial competitiveness of local companies offer. Uh, some countries are under very high interest rates. Uh, credit line approval can be very long and it really uh, makes it difficult for local companies to which we have all the process uh, implemented in the supply chain to promote the use of their services, but to be competitive uh, uh, or to be able to invest sufficiently to increase their capacity, etc. So this is a, a key topic. Um, we have the banks, but we also... 
Yeah. Maybe to, to build on this, and I, and I like that you actually mentioned the financial system, maybe you can brush upon the, the, the development financial institution that can actually be part of this. Can you also, I mean, and, and interesting, you know, having all those actors. I know we also mentioned universities and different training uh, training centers. Can you actually brush upon this and then I'll, I'll transition, you know, to uh, to, to Tatiana on, on, on building some of the of the content and capacities, if that's, that's perfect. Yes, so after, so the access to finance, and when we talk about capacity building, all those universities, et cetera, gravitating, uh, so of course, they, they, um, the, the, the project and all its supply chain go, yes, naturally to them to try to see what is feasible to identify the local workforce, etc. But mega project, uh, it's a huge market stimulation. And uh, it's important for me, for me it's key, to acknowledge that in the country, there are already entities, consulting entities, training entities, either public or private, that have already this knowledge and that can be reached out to. For different reasons, the first one is Beno. The I want to say the, the final train is better than the international players. But international players will also need to um, implement those capacity building plans. So they are the best place person to uh, quickly and efficiently implement training, uh, a first set of training, and communicate on what are their needs, what are the needs of the industry, what are their expectations, so they can. Uh, Revamp facility, uh, update the equipment, update the curriculum, train the curriculum as required, and not just support the current project uh, workforce requirement because the project is only for a set amount of years. So you're not being able to train an engineer from scratch if you start at the beginning of project construction. However, there might be, there will be opportunities for the operation, but it's not, it's going to be much less workforce. So, um, so yeah, so it's this momentum and mega project overall should be seen by the ecosystem as a leverage to develop its capacity, not just focusing on projecting, but the overall needs in the country. So multiple projects, so using it as a leverage to further invest and, uh, and make sure we increase capacity and quality. I'll come back on the second round on, on, on some of the points that I know we wanted to mention on this, but maybe just building on this for, for, for Tatiana, we, we, we centralized a little more on, on oil and gas at the beginning of, the, of this webinar. I know you worked in that sector, but also in the, in the sector of renewable energies, in the mining sectors, as, as we did. Uh, in terms of, of, of looking at, at how to trickle you know, inclusive development through those projects, can you maybe give us a, 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 to continue this you know, presentation of the different actors and the different projects that there is, give us your perspective on, on the view on how to create the, that development through in energy investments. Uh, thank you, Remy, um, and thank you all for the other panelists for the interesting inputs. Uh, so, yes, so uh, yesterday we had a brief, brief discussion about this, but actually energy it's, and inclusion, uh, it's a good point where local content and corporate social responsibility should merge. It should be a, a, a merge. And, and why? Because energy, as we treat it now, is, a, is a component, an essential component of our lives, but it's the heart of sustainable development because it affects all our life, health, education, security, environment, land use, resettlement, mm -hmm. and also other sectors and the inequalities between citizens um, that are, have some disabilities or between women and men. So I will take a, a step back probably in our conversation and try to set the scene in respect to this sustainability issue that we should start by recognizing that uh, we have universal access to, of, to energy to all as a fundamental right and uh, as a realization of an ideal justice. Uh, 
and then we can build on this. Because if all of us, and we are talking about communities, we are talking about companies, corporations, governments, we all have our interests. So the governments have the interest to reduce the levels of poverty, uh, to foster investments in the country, um, to provide employment. The companies also, as Patty mentioned, uh, and also uh, Thomas, they have also their interests, they want their revenues, but they are also concerned in implementing their projects in the right way to provide skills and to have qualified uh, workers, but they also want a social license to operate. Um, so, and, and maybe, and maybe, maybe to include an element, I mean, all those large projects, for example, oil and gas, also very much contribute to the access to energy to a large size of the population, exactly. both in Mozambique and others, where and people tend to forget that more than half the population doesn't have access to electricity. And yes, that's also positive. So I can, I kind of, you know, follow down the steps and try to bridge from the different views here. Sorry, please continue. Exactly. I, I was no, there. no. And, and 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 if we start from that, uh, and that's where I think uh, all the discussion around uh, energy energy for all, uh, sustainable development goals, this one, number seven, and energy transition falls, right? Sustainability as a whole. And just to give an example about, for example, the renewable sector, uh, uh, in terms of an indicator of job creation, very interesting, the last job census from uh, Power for All to 2019, uh, they measured the decentralized renewable energy sector. Uh, and in Kenya, they provided 11,000 direct jobs as compared to 10,000 jobs in the on-grid sector. But most interesting, and because we are also talking about best practices to, with communities and how to engage them, most of our communities, as we know, they are on informal sector. They are not directly employed in the formal sector. And for example, the use of decentralized, the, the decentralized renewable sector, uh, employs twice as many workers through informal jobs and five times as many through productive use jobs. So this is the, I think this is the, the, the impact that the fact that we look into energy and all the players in the energy sector can play, oil and gas companies, mining companies, renewable uh, operators, off-grid and on-grid, they should act together uh, in order to bring this uh, sustainability. No, that, that, that's very interesting in terms of, of talking about different actors. I see, I see Patty, you want to, uh, to, to react. I mean, I, 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 I'd like yeah. to hear your thoughts. I don't want to cut you. Yeah, I, I think what Tassiana said is exactly on point. And I, I think that there's, there's one more factor to consider, even though, you know, by, by default, you would think, oh, there's a big, you know, oil and gas project coming, therefore, there's going to be access to energy. That's, that's not always the case. In fact, it's, it's uh, rarely the case. And, and in fact, I think, uh, you know, as Yannick said, most of this is for export. In, in many cases, it's for export to larger markets. Whereas, you know, renewables uh, obviously are much more localized. They're much more accessible. Uh, the local communities can benefit um, in, in a more immediate and more sustainable way. Because uh, I think Tamao is the one who mentioned, you know, there's generally in many places a lack of infrastructure. So this is a really very important point because uh, in, in the past, I think a lot of um, large oil and gas companies have said, well, this isn't my business, so why would I invest in that? But we're really not talking about investing from a commercial standpoint. You're talking about investing from a community development and sustainability standpoint and from a, hopefully from an economic diversification standpoint, et cetera, all of which comes you know, back to contributing towards the sustainable development goals, reduction of the goals reduction of poverty, uh, access to clean energy, all of which is now a fundamental part of, you know, the corporate expectations on corporations. 
Maybe to you, thank you for, 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 for your insight. I've looked at the same time at questions from uh, on the chat. There's questions on regulations, and I know we, we probably will continue on uh, with Yannick on, on trying to look at different framework from, from regulations. I know Thomas has a few insight also on, on the different three countries in terms of, of their regulations on this. There's questions on, on communities' livelihood, uh, others specifically on the financing of, of small enterprises in, in countries. Uh, an example from, from Brazil and Argentina, I actually know exactly, I imagine the, the examples uh, that, that are in mind. Those are interesting questions. Maybe for you, Thomas, the, the, the financing, inclusion of the financing world, because I know you want to say something on, on developing financial in, uh, institutions. Uh, but yes, please, uh, on, on the element of, of regulation, Yannick, first, uh, can you uh, maybe give us a little more background on how to interact and include the different actors? We continue, uh, we had a series of, of interaction and discussions with you know uh, uh, actors in a, in, a, in a Mozambican government, Ugandan government, and others with you and some others around this panel. What, what is your, your, your vision on, on how the state apparatus or the regulation uh, building. There's a work in Mozambique with the Programma Unico. There's a series of different works uh, in, in, in Uganda and, and Tanzania also. What is your views of how the, the framework of regulations can facilitate or sometimes hamper the developments, inclusive developments or developments of projects? I do realize I put all the answers in together to, to, to see which one you're going to focus on. Um, maybe I'll start by perhaps giving a little bit of an overview and experience with regulation. And from that, the outcome that was by design and also what would have been the intended outcomes that sometimes get neglected specifically because of the specificity of regulation. Um, when discussing oil, oil and gas, a regulator for the massive projects and the awards and the concessions has been ENP. And in Uganda, I see that the Petroleum Authority, Petroleum Authority of Uganda has a similar approach as to how they regulate participation and as well as try to include local content. Uh, one of the discussed points and one of the points that here locally in Mozambique, uh, where it has also been discussed in parliament, is the equity participation and what benefits that can have on a given project. Uh, the outcome was to try to define a majority Mozambican ownership onto a project. If we look at the developments in Nigeria, uh, for example, they've managed to also have all local operators in oil and gas. But when you look at the context of Mozambique, most of the times you can't even have a benefit from that regulation because internally we do not have the capacity to, uh, to develop. So trying to define what is inclusive at times becomes uh, isolationist. And as well as when you do have uh, these companies able to participate, they're mostly the same players. And that does not allow for regional, regional inclusion. Uh, the concessions negotiate the benefit of the communities because the government uh, uh, represents the communities. And a lot of the times what is included in those concessions are resettlement agreements on behalf of the communities almost to move them out of the development zones and also eliminate the responsibility further with those communities but if uh, a discussion that we were having earlier that I, uh, yesterday that uh, I was personally looking into is because of the nationalization of the land 
and because of the law of occupation where you cannot simply uproot indigenous people even if there is a crucial project to the country without first negotiating with those communities initially it's looked at that the communities have no capital but because essentially you can see it as they have some ownership to the land an approach to the communities and this is not legislated an approach to the communities and actually understanding what would be more specifically their demands with something that they have a right over uh, sometimes has a better outcome. An example that I give is when we took to initiative and looked at the development of oil and gas in Mozambique, we saw some crucial regions that would be to the benefit of the oil companies uh, that had no infrastructure. We approached government to try to, as locals, exclusively as a local initiative, obtain a concession and then negotiate with, uh, with the multinationals the use of it. Our first approach was to go down to the district uh, to speak with the governors, to speak with the local chiefs, and as well as the communities and the unions that were there. And we found that their demands were very minimal and they did not need to be excluded from that community to actually benefit from the project. Uh, so this is an approach that the law that protects their occupation entices people to communicate, but because at a concession level where the representation of the communities is government, sometimes the actual demands are not accounted for. Uh, and one of the things that we found where we wanted to develop a port infrastructure the one demand, because it was, a, it was an old port, was not revitalized, is that they wanted a dock for fisheries, which was very uh, financially feasible and a minimal demand for the community that had been there and neglected for, for quite some time. So legislation at times is, it's needed to put like a guide to how to interact. But at times when you put a number to it, the responsibility to the multinationals at times is just that. And as well as the communities, they don't have any more say further onto what development could be for them. Uh, I appreciate the insight on, on this. And, and we, we've, you know, we've, uh, you mentioned a couple of times that we talked yesterday and another, another day. So that there's a series of conversation that we had coming up to it. And maybe we, we don't provide all the insights in this, in this webinar. We're more than happy to receive questions afterwards or build on this if, if you want us to, uh, to, to, to pursue. I think when the big debate on, on regulation, I appreciate your, what, what you mentioned is, is it not only the kind of text itself, but this capacity to be implemented and leading to economic diversification in the long run. So being able to answer and that's the complexities of any policymakers. You know, short-term expectation and sometimes you know higher than that should be reasonable to long-term potentially building and diversification of, of models of development and maybe on, on this question of, of economic diversification if i could turn to you thomas uh, on, on this one you know how can we see you know those investment in the energy sector not only oil and gas but in the energy sector as being you know models and, and motors towards economic diversification i know we discussed about difference between you know skills and knowledge at some point we discussed about you know models of collaboration with different stakeholders uh if, if you want to to, to address this, I'd like it. And as always, also a question from the audience on, on uh, financial institutions, if you, if you want to have a, a secondary question on this one. Thank you, Remy. If you don't mind, I'll start with a question in regards to the, to the financing. Yep. Uh, so, so thank you, Marcelo, for asking the, this question. And uh, hi, by the way, it's been a long time, but glad, uh, glad to see you here. Um, so in regards to, to the question, I'll just, uh, Remy, I, I have an issue with the feed. Could you just uh, remind the question of Marcelo? See, I'm just going to get you exactly the question of Marcelo. He was basically giving an example from Argentina and, and Brazil, but looking at how 
There could be a series of uh, setting up of small, let me just read it, wooden transnational companies working in those countries, uh, consider backing up uh, as collateral with some of local companies so that they get lower interest rates and loans from the banks as it has been done in Brazil and Argentina. So I can actually send you those elements of Brazil and Argentina. I know there are cases in Mozambique. I know there's a, you know, there's, I saw that something, did something with a BCI. There was Catalisa as part of, of the, the projects in the okay. last years. Thank you, Rémi. So, so uh, yes, uh, Barcelona, some companies are implementing this after uh, earlier, and I think it was my introduction to the question, I was talking about facility. And if you look at overall local content implementation in the general regulatory framework that concerns actually a majority of countries, it's mostly focused on mega projects and oil and gas sector of activity, but uh, very little on other activities, which also have a key role to play. So we are basically... Uh, if you look at it huh, from a governance point of view, and I'm going to generalize here because probably there are some countries who are doing differently, but it's asking the concessionaire, which core business is oil and gas, to cover or to be responsible for a lot of local content problematic, which all have a specific core business and activities related to access to the finance. It's no different. So when, uh, when they, so, so yes, this practice is being implemented, but I just want to remind to this, banks, it's their core business, mega project when they operate in the country, they provide new business, new activity, new opportunities that will generate new loans for the banks. And if this is not a good enough reason to review the markup and the process, I want to say it's a very good deal for banks, but uh, this is a spot contribution um, in the sense that if these models are not internally by the banks, to provide the ecosystem not just focused on oil and gas activities, it will work, but it will only address a small part of activity within a very framed context. And that, I think, is very unfair. Uh, to be able to keep those markups, to be able to make so much more money uh, on the background, and access to finance is a critical item to all these companies. So you're right, we are implementing this, and this is better than nothing. Let's be clear about it. However, to say that it is the responsibility of concessionaires to implement such things and, to, and when supporting this project, it is very important also to, to acknowledge that this is also retrieving some responsibilities from the banks uh, and the FIs that are in the country, that will be in the country for the coming decades and hundreds of years and are able to address these general challenges because huh? there are general challenges that are not just related to the oil and gas supply chain and it's just pushing the problem uh, a bit further away. So to answer the question, yes, it's being done, but I think there are some margin for improvement and this can be made possible through, uh, through more discussion in the uh, So I hope I was not too long into answering this question and I hope uh, I answered it right, uh, Marcelo. Uh, now, coming back to your question, uh, Rémi, on uh, how energy investment can be harnessed to support economic diversification. So we talked about mega projects, lots of uh, momentum on the market. So it is a leverage for investment. It attracts a lot of investment. So here we talk about industrialization. And I think it's important not just to support the existing companies, but also to develop a proper local offering, especially when we talk about support um, clusters, support activities. So um, we have the catering, of course. We have the logistics, storage, uh, civil construction, and so on. Those activities are not oil and gas focused. So I'd just like to remind oil and gas activities, most of the activities in country are not oil and gas uh, focused. Uh, 
a good momentum to develop the competitivity to this support, uh, uh, support clusters on way of speech. But it's also another way to bring other investments and develop other um, activities. And why I'm, I'd like to particularly highlight one point is that when we talk about mega projects, we will gener they generate a lot of activities for a short amount of time. People develop competences and skills. And what tends to happen if not prepared is that this workforce who have been trained, same goes for the SMEs, they go then to the operation phase and they're left without a business, without a market. And it is visible, and there's a lot of cases like that where all these workers end up to being back taxi drivers or just migrate to the limit of country because there are some opportunities. So it's a total loss of skill that stay in country. And same goes for SMEs, some of them go bankruptcy while they were seen as star players in the country. So uh, why I'm saying this is because there are several actors, and I mentioned some of the stakeholders earlier, who have a responsibility to bring other investment, develop local industrialization as a whole in the country, could be related to agriculture, uh, uh, food transformation, and so on, but to be sure that there are opportunities to reinstate these newly skilled workers and SMEs with an approach and make sure that it stays in the country. Um, so I'll stop here. No, that, that, was, that was already a, a good first thing. If you stop here, actually looking at business ecosystem and economic diversification, I'm going to go a little bit further, going up towards communities. And that, that's given me a, a good transition to, to Patricia on, on how to you know, make sure not only that you know, investment in the energy sector benefit the business ecosystem and the creation of skills and diversification economically, but also towards the conditions of our population on the ground and, and the interaction with, with communities, trying to uh, have transparent communication and maybe offer them other opportunities completely on the side of the projects. Thank you, Remy, and, and thank you to the, the um, participants who've been sending in these, these excellent questions. I wish we had more time, days to discuss these, but um, but first I want to clarify, when, when I mentioned before, when I talked about you know, land use rights and, and resettlement, um, resettlement requires livelihood restoration, and, and livelihood restoration really is not a corporate social responsibility or a you know, local content activity. It is actually putting people back into the position they were before. So providing them with some type of livelihood that makes them equal. And I say that because that, that is not, um, that is the minimum, the absolute minimum. On top of that, you have development of, of, of workforce and supplier capacity. But in addition to that, you have community development, community economic diversification. And this is where we talked about going to the communities. The communities have to be a significant participant in providing information back to the corporations, whether it's through their social sustainability groups or through whatever, whatever the setup is. But that communication does need to take place and the decision-making needs to be joint. Mm -hmm. I know this sounds like it's very idealistic, but actually I think the point uh, that, um, that Yannick was making is that oftentimes in, in prior days, because I know many of the larger companies do this now, but there was a, a concern that, oh, if we go ask what they want, they're gonna come back with these you know, very large schemes or, or you know, extremely expensive things that are not, that, um, that are not feasible. That's not really the case in, in the base case. Communities have more, um, their demands tend to be more localized. And second of all, they know best what they do actually have the potential to do, what is actually sustainable for them. And I think as, as Tomas mentioned, you know, things, um, programs such as um, developing, you know, agriculture, um, 
and and other innovative um, just type just, of activities, which have to be financed. Maybe to build on this and and, and let you maybe uh, continue after. But uh, for we did a specific webinar a couple of months ago on on tackling you know relationship between energy mm -hmm. projects and indigenous communities uh, in especially in Canada. And we looked at the project reconciliation mm -hmm. project on 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 the the gas the, the sorry the gas link uh, projects from Alberta to British Columbia, uh, where there's a trust structure with joint decision making on a very specific approach to social and, and, and developments uh, where academic actors from, from different universities, obviously TCN, mm -hmm. obviously other, other communities are part of, of decision schemes. So if just as a parenthesis, if anyone is interested, just go on our website. Well, I'm happy to send the link mm -hmm. so that people can see how this can be operated. Obviously, the, the, yeah. the situation in Canada is different from Mozambique. There are different capacities and so on, but that could be an interesting blueprint or ideas of pilot projects that oh, actually they're implemented at, at large scale uh, could be actually quite interesting to uh, for for, for these developments. Please continue. Sorry, Apali, I didn't want to cut you. No, not at all. And, and, and I appreciate this because this, this is actually a global issue, but we're going to talk specifically about Mozambique and of course, Tanzania and Uganda. And I think from a community perspective, it is, it is critical that they be a participant and a, I don't know if you'd call it voting member or part of the decision-making process because they know better than the corporations. And oftentimes, you know, you'll come in with, with the best intentions, with the absolute best intentions, saying, oh, well, this is what we think you should do. And they'll, you know, it, it just doesn't work for the social fabric of that particular community. Mm -hmm. I think the other thing they have to be a little bit careful of is um, that one solution applies to all the communities. That, that's not the case. But um, I, I think Tassiana and Tomas both brought up the issue of, of financing and microfinancing. The, incredible uh, innovative spirit and creativity that different people in the communities can have is a source that has to be tapped. Mm -hmm. And very often what they need in terms of an investment is very, very minimal financing and microfinance schemes working with the well national banks um, and other types of shorter term investments that generate longer term results, um, reinvesting in into you know cooperatives, that kind of thing, are, are often more successful from a sustainability standpoint and allow for the changes in growth because the community will change. Inevitably, the community will change and the needs will change. That, that transitions me perfectly to, to Tatiana. Uh, and um, we, we were discussing uh, ahead of this webinar, but we can continue on this, of, of the importance of having a you know, bottom-up approach to participation, including and mapping the SDGs uh, to, to, to communities and where you can have this capacity of micro-companies, micro-enterprise with a series of, of clear, transparent methodologies uh, to, to implement those projects. How can this you know, contribute to some of those SDGs? And maybe Tatiana, if you can you know, help me elaborate on this and, and provide examples example, uh, I mean, I can also provide some from Tanzania, Uganda, but you can do Mozambique, any country that you wish. I'm happy to build on this. And we're going to be going a little bit beyond uh, the, 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 the hour time. Sorry, please take your time because I think people might be interested to stay longer and I want to listen to you. Uh, thank you, Vinny. So I, I would just like to make a comment following Thomas and, 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 and uh, Patty's uh, in terms of the financing, because it really, for my example, I'm training a, a Mozambican micro and SMEs uh, and also uh, businesses that are uh, owned by women. And really the access to financing, it's the crucial point, because if we train them in all the other components, 
like they know how to write a business plan, they know how to manage their accounts, they know everything about health and safety, they know everything about ethical and compliance, but then they arrive to the commercial bank and boom, there is a big corporation that besides all the trainings, they just have either huge interest rates or they have to go through another very cumbersome and bureaucratic process to get access to finance. And actually in Mozambique, we have very, um, we are very creative <laughs> and we have a, a couple of uh, community structures for financing. One of them is called Chitik, mm -hmm. which is something that the communities do that they put money every week. Like we do that uh, at, at home. We put money every week and every week the money goes to some, someone of the household. And most of the most of the small, small, tiny projects, they work based on this structure. And, 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 this, uh, uh, and this is a part of the, the how are we going to tackle sustainable development goals? We need to also start to create opportunities on the financing sector to these uh, uh, micro entities that usually are individuals to do their, their, their work. And, and again, if we go to, for example, um, women-owned business, uh, we have uh, uh, at MWE, we are supporting some women and, and, um, and we are developing a, a pilot project, which is called uh, Girafa Solar in cooperation with uh, another foundation, uh, Carlos Morgado Foundation, where we just make a, a solar installation on rural areas, off-grid areas mm -hmm. uh, that uh, just charges like around uh, 20 cell phones and radios and it's like a small hub of the community and we train women to manage that installation but we want to replicate this and we we are unable to raise funding for this very limited installation so this is the this is the the reality right uh, and so I really think that this uh, access to finances is extremely, extremely uh, important, uh, besides, of course, the, the, the training of the capacities and all this. I'm not sure if you want me to also to answer to one of the questions of the, of the panelists. I'm, I'm more than happy for you to take one of the questions. The, the, the role of uh, international community or local community to ensure uh, sustainability to clean energy. So in terms of our government and the targets and the commitments that our government took in terms of uh, clean energy and sustainable energy, we have a couple of targets under our energy strategy, but most recently under our five-year government plan. Uh, and we tend to reach uh, to until 2013. I really don't remember now what is the percentage, exactly percentage of on-grid electrification, but, but it's a, a huge step towards electrification. But in, in terms of concrete projects, I can uh, give two examples. So uh, the government is running a project uh, that is an auction project uh, for uh, some sites that will develop renewable energy up to 40 megawatts. Um, and on the off-grid, uh, of course, uh, there are a couple of projects that will support mini-grids, the implementation of mini-grids, mostly in the capital of the districts uh, called postures administrativos, and also uh, together with the energies, uh, the other energy services such as uh, home solar systems and clean uh, cooking stoves. And we have some donors as well support, highly supporting the private sector to invest on these on these projects. 
Mm -hmm. No, but that, that, that's interesting when you're talking about, you know, the, the, the importance of, of harnessing some, some of the projects that are very different, but the capacity of a, of a solar energy project of developing, you know, positive outcome for, for development. This is a very specific element of, of, of a small project, but you can have the same, you know, ideas of looking at a larger, in terms of oil and gas, uh, uh, multi-billion investment of trying to have those capacities to engage with communities and engage with small businesses and provide them a voice to discuss of how to support some of their projects, either community-led projects for rural electrification, for example, that can be, and, and if you talk with you know, NG, uh, energy access, that was part of another webinar, you can see the business case here. It's actually a business case that is profitable if it's actually supported. So we're not talking about you know, grants and giving money away. We're talking about having some of those vehicles to be able to promote and harness a large part of the uh, like an investment on the side of a large investment to try to show the dedication to communities and therefore facilitate the social license you operate. If I'm going you know, very quickly in terms of connecting dots, but that's also important to be able to bridge that gap in terms of social economic situation on the ground and an, an element of obviously large perceived investment uh, on the other side. There's also the needs from the from the uh, the concessionaires and the operators to be able to really see, you know, and 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 find the actors on the ground to build some programs of of capacity building based not only on, on general knowledge or specific skills, but more generally on being able to replicate it on, on a model of economy that would be diversified. So it's a very wide series of issues and topics that we've covered here in this webinar. Uh, but the idea here for me is really to try to see and set the stage for a further conversation, obviously. And those are topics where we exchange on, on, on different medium, uh, good publications or elements of, of thought leadership on how to provide this. There are some very good case studies that are very specific in, certain, in some, some areas, but can be somewhat replicated, even if we're in the case of, let's say, the, 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 the project, uh, Jacob project, we're talking about a large pipeline from you know, Uganda to Mozambique. On some other cases, some publication might be looking at a you know, more, let's say, 40 megawatter energy project. There are some energy, some, some methodologies that can be replicated, especially when you have a pipeline that's going to be outside of, a, of, a, of, a, of the ground because of the nature of the uh, of, uh, of the crude here and therefore they will have to be much more community engagement throughout you know the the the, the path of, of pipelines the, the, com the companies have projects obviously and, and, and interest and that they can do so much in terms of being able to engage with communities but they can also rely with a series of different actors whether national internationally to facilitate you know the link with other secondary objectives that benefit the communities and there in return benefit their project and the profitability on that project because you will not face some socioeconomic you know hurdles or sometimes you know suspension for for different issues and therefore allow investors to have a return on their on investment and facilitate the trickling down of the sdgs this is a very wide range of topic that we try to cover and probably a very long sentence to try to put this all together uh, but we're going to try to build on this webinar we're probably going to provide you know the written transcripts i have to run it by the panelists First, but I don't think any kind of confidential information was was, was shared, but that we are happy to, to share this. And, and I, I'm happy to say that I'm Billy, I can call the four panelists here my friends. So I'm happy to have you here. And, and I've talked about the last few months on those issues. And I know of, of their personal qualities and, and the capacities for them to answer to them if you reach out on the specific question. So please do so and reach out to us if you can be of, of any help. Please, uh, Patty, uh, Tasiana. Yannick and Thomas, I just wanted to say thank you again. Uh, thank you for the uh, attendance for, for coming here. And I look forward to, the, to the, our next conversation. Sounds good? Cheers. And thank you very much for being here. Bye. Cheers. Bye. Thank you. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. Thank you, everyone.